Welcome to a special episode of the Green Shoots podcast by Appleyard Lees. We're joined by British wheelchair racing athlete and Paralympic gold medalist Hannah Cockcroft. Hannah is a five-time Paralympic champion, 12-time world champion and T34 world record holder for the 100m, 200m, 400m, 800m and 1500m races. In this episode, Hannah discusses preparations for the Tokyo 2020-2021 Olympics, the technology and the equipment that's enabled her to become a world-class athlete, and why mechanical innovation in her sport has slowed down significantly since the 1970s. Joining Hannah is sports enthusiast and Appleyard Lee's Head of Trademarks and Litigation, Rob Cumming, and Adam Tyndall, an Appleyard Lee's partner and patent attorney with a background in engineering. Hannah, welcome. Hello. Thanks for joining us on uh, our podcast. Thank you for having me. <laughs> it's not every day that you get to meet an Olympian, but further than that, somebody who's won so many medals as you have in, in so many different disciplines. So it's in, an impressive roster. And how are you feeling about the uh, forthcoming 2020 slash 2021 Olympics. It'll be your third time, won't it? It will, yeah. My third Paralympics, my third time representing Great Britain. I'm looking forward to it. It's obviously going to be a very different games to any that I've been to before. Yeah. As we record, they fly out in like three weeks, I think it is. So it's coming quickly, but I think there's going to be a lot to learn when we get out there. And just got to stay safe for three weeks. And then I've just got to get there and sit in a hotel room, <laughs> which sounds like yeah. great fun. Yeah, the stories I've read so far, of course, you're going to the Paralympics, which is slightly after the the, uh, Olympics, isn't it? But Mm -hmm. I imagine that the setup is pretty much identical in terms of the COVID restrictions and isolation and so on. And it seems to be quite stringent. Yeah, it looks looks like it. I'm just watching all the Olympic guys and watching their stories on Instagram and seeing what they're doing. Looks like we're going to get tested every day, COVID tests every day. We're not going to be allowed at the hotel. Got to eat behind screens. A lot of the Olympic guys are referring to it as jail. So I'm trying <laughs> yeah. not to think about that before we get there because that doesn't sound too appealing. <laughs> I'm not sure. <laughs> yeah, it does sound like a kind of almost like you're in a prison, like you say. But <laughs> I'm sure when you get there and you get out onto the track for the first time, wearing a mask, of course, <laughs> at least till you, you whip it off before the, the starting gun, then everything is kind of in a bubble and in a bit of an odd world. But we're, we're all kind of used to the oddity, if you like, of the world at the moment. But how does that affect your preparation? Because not only do you have to be the fittest you've ever been as an athlete, but you also need to deal with that mental aspect of everything is going to be different to how you've trained for 10 15 20 years yeah you know I think it's it's a funny one I feel like I've dealt with the whole COVID situation quite well to be honest just try to keep picking out the positives you know ultimately the massive overriding positive is that the Paralympics are actually going ahead so however it goes ahead I don't really care at this point as long as I get on that start line and I get my chance to get out there and race because Ultimately, that's what I've worked for for five years. So if that had been completely cancelled, then that would be devastating. So you have to kind of pick out the positive and and just realise that this is all part of the job. This is part of life now. So if I have to go and sit in a hotel for three weeks to win a gold, then that's what I have to do. And ultimately, you know, we've all done it. We've all done it for the last kind of 18 months now. So I'm used to it. 
I'm just storing up my Netflix movies and going to take loads of books and I'll be absolutely fine. But training wise, my training, I've managed to keep it quite normal, actually, over the past year. Obviously, when the games were first postponed, I had to be quite creative and it was quite a hit with gyms short, tracks short. You know, I've not had a day in 13 years without going to a track or a gym every single day. So that was quite a shock, but it allowed the creativity to, you know, go out and create sessions that I enjoyed, go out training on the roads a bit more. We built a gym in the garage and just basically just do training that sometimes we don't get the opportunity to do because you're so focused on what's the next race we've got to prepare for, what's the next training camp, what's I don't know, whatever's coming up, we've always got to be yeah, ready for yeah. it. Whereas, you know, the, the past year, we've, we've just been able to enjoy our sport, which has been quite nice. And I think that's what Tokyo is going to be about. It's going to be about enjoyment. It's going to be a celebration of, you know, look what we've all got through. Yes. And we're coming out the other side of it. And we've just got to be thankful that, you know, whatever it is, it's going to be very, very unique. But that's the magic of an Olympic and Paralympic Games. No two games are the same. You know, I learned that between London and Rio. Tokyo is going to be completely different again. <laughs> it's probably worth pointing out at this point that uh, of the two of us, that Rob is the more sporty of the two, and I'm, <laughs> I'm, and I'm more into the uh, engineering and the equipment side of things, which questions burning in my mind are things like, you know, you've got this very specialised piece of equipment, and, you know, what do you have to think about in terms of getting that over there and getting it set up correctly? And and even maintaining it while you're there, is, is that more difficult now than it's been before? I don't think it's more difficult now. It's always difficult. Oh, right. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously, it's like two metre long piece of metal that you have to get on a plane. So you basically have to beg to get it on the plane to begin with. Oh, really? Okay. Oh, they do not like taking them. They do not like the race chairs at all. And then they are just so, they're so fragile. Like the slightest knock can completely destroy the chair. So... I've had loads just written off by putting them on planes and they just come out the other side in a knot, which is like the worst nightmare. It's my worst nightmare, so thanks for bringing it up. But um, <laughs> <laughs> So we get so normally I have a specially made bag that I put the race chair in and you put right. it in there, just cover it in all sorts of foam and just whatever you can to keep it stable. I've just had a new box built which is like hard plastic and then it kind of is built around the chair. So hopefully that'll give it a bit more support when it goes on the on the right. plane. And then, yeah, I've just got to take every spare I can think of, which is pricey and takes yeah. up a lot of your suitcase. <laughs> I, I'm amazed at this. I'd have thought, you know, an airline would say, hey, we've got some major celebrities on board here. Let's make every let's give their, their equipment extra seats and things. Is that not how it is, is it? I wish it was like that. No, okay. like, <laughs> you know what? It's difficult getting a wheelchair on a plane as it is, even right. if it looks like a wheelchair. So when we turn up with the race chairs, they just look at them and they're like, what is, what is that? So technically, by EU law, we're allowed to take two pieces of mobility equipment for free on any airline in the world. Obviously, not a lot of airlines like that rule. So I've had a lot of arguments at checking desks about wheelchairs, showing them pictures of what I do and, and showing them pictures of the equipment. And wow, yeah, it's, it is a nightmare. For the Paralympics, it will be a little bit easier because we have someone to do all that for us. I literally have to get on a plane and okay. get to Tokyo and everything else is sorted. But yeah, normally for other competitions, for other training camps, it's, it's just a fight. <laughs> yeah. At the other end, do you have a, a team of people who are, are there to help you set your equipment up? 
my team would be me and my okay. boyfriend. <laughs> right, okay. <laughs> right. No, we don't have any mechanics. It's something that we've really pushed for. Like I've been pushing for it for the last 10 years and have got absolutely nowhere. In a way, I think it's good because if something goes wrong on that start line, you need to know how to fix it yourself. Hmm. So the fact that we're kind of, well, we've got no choice. We have to know how to do every single bit of our race chair and put it back together. It's almost part of the sport, isn't it? To know your equipment. It is, it is. But I've had it like 10 minutes before I'm going out to race a final and I've had a puncture. It's not oh, what you want to be no. dealing with. It adds a lot of stress. So I, when I was in Rio, the day before my 100 meter final, the bus driver fell over my race chair and he bent the front wheel. <sighs> and I mean, it's it's already a very high pressure situation. Like everyone's a bit highly strung. Everyone's very nervous. Everyone's a bit touchy. And this happens and I just cried. I just sat and cried. I was like, I can't race. Look at my chair. <laughs> now, luckily, like one of my teammates, uh, Rich Kiyosaro, he's he's so clever. He knows the chair inside and out. So he just took it away and fixed it. And I could. He- it took him a while, to be fair. And I could hear a lot of banging about. But <laughs> yeah, people don't realize like that chair is literally, if I don't have that chair, I'm not getting on that start line. It's just, it's an extension of me. You know, if that gets broken, it's like me being injured. I'm, I'm not racing. So yeah. it's, it's so precious. There's not two or three others that you've got in the, uh, that you brought with you. You've only got the one chair, I guess. That... Yeah. So I've got one chair. I'm quite lucky that, well, I've been in a sport 14 years now. So I've got quite a few chairs <laughs> lying in mom and dad's cellar. So worst comes to worst, I will have one set up at home for mom and dad to fly out to me. But yeah, we, we only get funded to take one chair with us. So that chair literally, if it gets broken the day before the race, then that's it. There's no way of getting a spare chair out. Yeah, it's it's like an athlete's worth nightmare. <laughs> and how did you get on in that race the, the following day after your chair was broken by the bus driver in Brazil? Oh, absolutely fine. I've won the gold medal. <laughs> So that's what I was getting at, Hannah. You, you, you're quite modest there. You, you didn't mention that, despite the uh, the trauma of the day before. You then went on to win a gold medal at the Paralympics. Was that a hundred, or was that the two hundred, or was that the four hundred? Yeah, it was. <laughs> it was the hundred meters that time. So yeah, probably the hardest one to win. But sometimes yeah. I, I feel like a bit of a bit of stress actually makes you push a bit better sometimes yeah a bit of stress relief <laughs> in a way it's almost like you got you got the tension out because it's like oh my goodness uh, i've got this damaged equipment and i might not be able to race at all too suddenly i'm actually the paralympic gold medalist and also the world record holder i believe for that distance yeah that's the one <laughs> <laughs> wow so so we've talked a bit about the preparations for Tokyo and we talked about how the fact that it's unique because of the the time when it's taking place. I, I suppose every Olympics is special in its own way, but I think the very fact that Tokyo is even going ahead at all is maybe a triumph of a society trying to overcome the fact that we've had this pandemic which has been devastating. So even getting to the Olympics and the Paralympics in the first instance is is an incredible achievement, but getting there during a pandemic and with all of the issues you mentioned relating to the restricted travel is incredible. So best of luck in that respect. Thank you very much. <laughs> I think it would be helpful maybe to let's look back at your 
career, your sporting career. And if you could tell us a little bit more, Hannah, about how did you get into wheelchair racing? Was it from day one you decided, okay, that's what I want to do? Or did you explore other sports, first of all? Yeah, so I didn't really do sports at all when I was younger. It was always something that I was interested in, but I grew up in a very able-bodied world, so I never knew about the Paralympics, I never knew about para-sport. I always just wanted to do what my, my brothers were doing, so that was me, and I was very active, but I never did organised sport, because obviously people saw a disabled person and went, well, you can't do this. When I was 12, the local wheelchair basketball team went into my secondary school to do a demonstration, and that was the first time I'd kind of seen para-sport, I'd been involved in it, and I just absolutely loved it, like the freedom that the wheelchair gave you, the speed and the agility that these guys had was mind-blowing. And it turned out that the coach literally lived around the corner from where I lived. So dad wow. walked me around and went and knocked on and said, oh, you know, can Hannah can Hannah come and how does she join your team? What does she have to do? And he, he just said, turn up at training. Like, that's it. So I, I played basketball for six years with the team and they were absolutely fantastic with me. They introduced me to anything they could get their hands on so I tried wheelchair tennis I tried wheelchair rugby um I tried the seat of discus and then when I was 15 I got the chance to try wheelchair racing and that was me like I didn't want to do it you know I went I went along to um a come and try day I saw the race chairs I was like no I'm not interested in that but my dad was pretty keen that I would try everything because we were there so <laughs> I tried everything and it's, it's the best thing he ever could have done you know getting there and, and getting in that race chair just I, I just was instantly hooked yeah so it was an instant as soon as you got in that race chair despite your reservations before despite being a rugby tennis and, and so on you decided okay I'll get in the chair just to keep my dad happy and it turns out you were you were quite good at it. And then you were like, oh, this is uh, quite enjoyable, actually, winning these things. Well, you know what? Like, obviously, you don't go straight into a race. You just, you just push around a bit. And um, I just really enjoyed the freedom that the chair gave me. You know, basketball was amazing, but you have to pass the ball. You have to rely on your teammates. You have to stop at the end of the court. When I got in the race chair, that was me. Like, I could go... As, far as I wanted I could go as fast as I could like there was no one telling me to be careful or stop doing this or do this or yeah. whatever it was it, it was just me in a track so it's like a freedom there's, there's fewer boundaries I suppose yeah it was the freedom that, that hooked me in and I just went away I, I borrowed a chair for a few years after that went away trained every day and slowly everything else I did just started dropping away and all I wanted to do was go to the track I'm interested by your comment that you didn't fancy it at the time you know in hindsight that seems what, what didn't you like it about the look of them so if you see the race chairs the, there's two style of race chairs and there were two styles of race chairs at the day the come and try day so everyone was in the race chair where you kind of you sit in it like a seat so you put your feet down and you put your bum on the seat and off you go and I was happy to get in that race chair but the only race chair that was free and available to go in was the type that I race now which is Essentially, you, you sit on your legs in the race chair, so you're, you're quite screwed up. It makes it more aerodynamic, but it is so uncomfortable. I just wasn't interested in being uncomfortable, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so that's maybe innovative in some ways. At some point, somebody said, you know what, I'm not going to put my legs at the front. I'm going to kneel on them, and that's going to make me more aerodynamic. At what point in the uh, time frame of the Paralympics did the innovation of 
a racing chair come about, Hannah? It, before your time, I imagine. But Long before I just my wonder. Time. <laughs> yeah, but I just wondered at what point was there a, a leap from the traditional wheelchair that people might have in mind and the racing wheelchair which you use nowadays? So I guess the the racing chair design has developed kind of between the biggest developments were probably made between the fifties and the seventies. So the original racing chair was your NHS bog standard hospital wheelchair that then got upgraded to something that I can only explain that looks like a roller skate like you've got two big back wheels you've got two little front wheels the little front wheels had little brakes on but you're still sat in it like you would a chair you know you're very close to the floor sat in it and your feet are out in front of you and I've tried one it genuinely feels like you're driving a roller skate. That's the only way I can so, describe it. So has that got two... <laughs> I'm just visualising this. Has that got two front wheels? That's got two front wheels and two back wheels. Okay, right. So then the 60s, they came out with probably the closest version to what you see today, the two back wheels and the single front wheel. I presume for aerodynamics, I don't actually know, but those guys all had their feet down in front of them as well. And then since then, like the only big difference that's been made is, you know, changing the position in the chair. So you will see some athletes still sit with their legs out. It it normally depends on your disability. So your preference because of whatever your disability is. But most athletes now sit in the aerodynamic position that I sit in where you're kneeling up. The chairs have got a little bit longer. The chairs have got a little bit lighter. Other than that, that's kind of that's kind of it. That's that's where the innovation stops. <laughs> Is that it? Yeah, I'm looking at pictures as we talk and, and pictures of you racing as well. I'm, I'm marveling at people's control down this very narrow track are the chairs are they very stable or how do you steer them the track isn't exclusively straight is it you've got a big arc that you've got to go around at either end so yeah yeah so you've you've got the two bends and two straights of a 400 meter track you don't have a lot of room to play with in the lane because obviously a track is predominantly made for runners so they don't need a lot of room to fit wheels in (laughs) um so race chairs have like a maximum length and a maximum width that they can be so you have to stay within those parameters if you want to race professionally or in an elite mm. setting. And for getting around the track, we have we basically have bike steering at the front of the chair, so we can steer it manually. And then underneath the steering handles, we have like a triangle lever. That's called a compensator. So right. ultimately, you set the compensator. It's literally two screws into the side of a lever. and you hit it one way and it holds your wheel on the bend and you hit it the other way and it holds your wheel on the straight so you'll see if you ever watch us race you'll be sprinting everyone will stop and it just looks like we hit the chair you're actually hitting the compensator that then holds your wheel to the camber of the bend and then you hit it back and you go on the straight that sounds pretty critical do you get a few goes at that on the track to get it right or or, uh... you do have to practice it. It is There is an art to it. You do have to get it right because you can lose a lot of time when you're mm. racing. If you don't get it spot on, if you don't hit it square the first time or if you haven't set it, obviously every track is slightly different. So you have to set your compensator for every race. If you haven't set it properly or if you just miss that one push and you don't hit it in time, I've seen some pretty brutal crashes because of that. So yeah. it's, yeah. it's quite the an important bit got to be spot on hasn't it on the day itself then do you you know you you each get a couple of laps to to practice that or you get one lap oh right okay between it before every race (laughs) um 
Yeah, you've got a nail. And I've seen loads of athletes just, they just have no idea what they're doing. They get it wrong and you've basically wasted your race. <laughs> and it will vary depending on which lane you're in, of course. Won't it varies it? on lane. It, it varies depending on where the wind is, where the stands are, where the weather is, all sorts of things of the type of track that you're racing on. So it, you always have to change it. That's incredible. I, I didn't realise it was quite so complex getting that steering right mm. because actually your hands are going to be on the, the wheels because you're pushing the wheels to go round rather than on the, the steerer. There's a lot more going on than I appreciated. When it's something you do every day, you don't really think about it. You just do it. And then people ask you about it and you're like, oh, yeah, it's probably quite important. You're <laughs> yeah. very modest, but I'm just trying to figure out, right, okay, so you've got to push, then you've got to steer, but you've got to check the wind direction. And then somebody else is coming up on you inside. But yeah, I see. Okay. There's an incredible amount of judgment and skill that goes into the, the navigation of these things, let alone in the athleticism in, in pushing them along. Yeah, I think you've got to know you've got to know your own chair. That's the most important thing, I think. I was thinking, where is the, the Fosbury flock of wheelchair racing? So Fosbury, <laughs> the famous high jumper, decided to jump over backwards over the bar and and uh, revolutionised the technique which was used for the high jump, of course. And in in wheelchair racing, is there a, a pivotal moment? Perhaps it was when the front wheels went from two to one. But is there any way in which there could be a revolution of the techniques or the technology which is used in, in wheelchair racing? So, yeah, I think, like you say, the, probably the ones that have happened are either when we went from two wheels down to the single front wheel, or it could be, and I, I don't know who kind of came up with the push technique or when it changed, but for a long time the guys just, pushed like you would push a, a day chair so you would kind of grab hold of the push room and just push we now when I say now we have for a long time worn we wear gloves that hold your hand in a fist so ultimately we don't grip and push down on the on the rims you just punch them and ultimately the wheel then turns into something similar to a spinning top so once you've got it turning you just have to keep it going you just have to keep whipping it round which then obviously because every time you're grabbing the wheel, you're slowing it down. So we're not grabbing it because our hands are in fists, so we can just keep it going. I guess nice. the next thing on from that is is then the design of the glove. So I've just kind of, during the pandemic, moved on to a new style of racing glove. I started out on a golf glove wrapped in tape. Very, very snazzy, I'll let you know. <laughs> um, I then moved on to a glove called a harness glove. Ultimately, it's it's a leather glove, literally like what you'd wear on a winter's day, but it's made of leather. It's got padding on the fingers and it's got like a Velcro strap that holds your hand in a fist so you can punch the rim and it doesn't hurt your hands. And then in the pandemic, I moved on to hard gloves, solid gloves. That is essentially a 3D printed piece of plastic that is then basically molded around your hand. And because there's no impact, you know, it's a hard plastic onto a hard metal push rim. All your power is going through the rim. So, yeah, wow. there, there's, yeah, little things, little changes that... Yeah, it often is incremental, isn't it? Yeah, like for me in the last 18 months, it, it's probably the solid gloves that have made the biggest difference to my performance and, and the performances I've been able to put on this year have been 
because I've learned to push in this this different glove. So in the same way that with runners and swimmers, how there's a lot of, one gets the impression, I don't know if it's just marketing, that that there's quite a lot of development that goes into shoe styles and the clothes that people wear. But I mean, it sounds like there's quite a lot of, uh, you were talking about several innovations just in the gloves there but but in the is this all work that you're doing yourself or does team gb have a you know is there a technical team or other people who are trying to you know say hey try our product or you know are working with you to develop these things yeah so most of the you know the gloves or uh, the push rim sizes they're all things that are athlete led so my my teammate rich kiyosaro he made my gloves for me I mean, they're a project that he took upon himself during the pandemic and was like, oh, I'm just I'm just going to try it out. And actually, like, almost every every athlete on the circuit now owns a pair of his gloves. A lot of the changes in our sport are athlete-led. We've had a few projects led by UK Sport. Unfortunately, none of them have ever really... Uh, they've never really come off. So going into London 2012, they tried to create fully carbon fibre race chair right. and then a, a kind of a different shaped wheel to make it more aerodynamic and we just never got to the end of that project unfortunately and going into tokyo they're trying to create some more aerodynamic race tops so there's small things but it's always around the paralympic time and very very focused on a few athletes whereas you know a new glove design can benefit everybody but that's always athlete-led pretty much so with the clothing that you wear then are there any you know is that the way that the cut does that help you know your your muscles in a particular way what are the kind of considerations when when those modifications are being made ultimately there's never really been that much kind of investigation done into it i've never been in a wind tunnel or anything like that right but we found that i mean my wind tunnel (laughs) the way that i've tested helmets and kit i've pushed down a hill (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> and seen which one which helmet i went fastest in and we went oh that's that that must be the helmet very technical but um yeah so ultimately i always try to race in long sleeved tops like of a lycra kind of tight fitting and a bit slick i don't know if it's a mental gain of thinking oh i'll be more dynamic in this but that's what i race in but yeah no there's not really been any studies into what we should race in because obviously we're in a very very different position to cyclists or to runners or to any other mm. sport really you know we're, we're leaning over ourselves and our arms are moving but the rest of us isn't really it certainly is the only parallels i can draw is is with cycling and that's uh, where i've got a little bit of experience but the amount of dedication people put to finding out whether a 23 millimeter tire is better than a 24 millimeter tire is is incredible sometimes and so much research goes into that type of minutiae which it seems it's maybe untapped in the wheelchair racing world maybe in a hundred meter sprint it's less relevant than in something that's longer distance like a marathon but there's perhaps something to be said for doing that kind of wind tunnel testing and um Adam alluded to the different clothing styles that swimmers can use, which I think they were uh, they were banned, weren't they, Adam, before the last Olympics? The hydrophobic suits, which were shaped like a shark's teeth or something. There was something like that. It was quite interesting, wasn't it? I thought. Uh, yeah. And, and yeah, so they, yeah. they were banned because it gave too much of an advantage. Um, but certainly from time trial cycling, 
one of the best upgrades you can have is to wear a skin suit, a bespoke or all-in-one skin suit, and that can knock tens of seconds off a 20-mile time trial, for instance. So it sounds to me like there's potential there for somebody. Maybe you need to watch your back, Hannah, uh, to uh, to come put all of these other innovations and and borrow them and, and experiment with them and, and see if they can find those those marginal gains because that's what it's all about trying to catch up with you. Well, yeah, that's the thing. There are so many parts of wheelchair racing that could be improved, and I think as athletes, we're really very aware of it. But obviously, you know, we we don't have a Team Sky or, or whatever that, the equivalent might be. We don't have that kind of investment. So getting in a wind chamber to begin with is hundreds, thousands of pounds that our sport just don't have. And without that investment, kind of just the progressions don't really come. Athletes have a limited pot of money to, to start looking into things and, and what would I like to change. Like I look at the race chair all the time and there are a million things I would change on it if I had the money, if I had the time, if I could just completely strip back and build my own race chair. And I think people are becoming more aware of it. There are certainly a lot of ideas kind of flying around as to, to what we could do to go quicker. But I think one of the things I love about wheelchair racing is because we don't have that, it literally is who is the strongest on the day, who is the fastest, who's trained hardest. Everyone is ultimately in exactly the same chair. So it remains about the athlete. Whereas sometimes you look at other sports where equipment is involved and you go, ah, come on, their equipment's like a million times better. (laughs) It's not fair at all. Whereas, yeah, wheelchair racing is still, it's still fair game. And I love that. I mean, I was interested about the um, developments of chairs. I know that there are companies that specialize in race chairs and i know they're very bespoke and configured and fitted to the individual athlete and you know even the training equipment you're talking about your in your uh, indoor gym that you created i don't know whether that was one that you bought or one that you made your yourself as well but i mean it sounds like there's quite an industry out there making this kind of equipment is it yeah so there are ultimately there are let me count four maybe five companies in the world that specialize in in wheelchair racing i think whatever you started is kind of what you stick with Um, and you just build this kind of trust in in that style frame and then all the other equipment it just comes from the same places so you mentioned the equipment in the gym for my indoor training sessions i've got a roller so ultimately it's a big drum and you rest the back wheels of the race chair on it and you can push and you don't move anywhere um my dad is a typical Yorkshire man who looked at the roller and said, there's no way that's worth a thousand pounds. I'll make you it. Um, and you know what? I've had it nearly 15 years and it's still going strong. So I train on that every that's week amazing. and it's still there. It's very, very helpful, especially as a, you know, when I was a beginner, so I had no money and, and no sponsors and no funding. It's an expensive sport, you know, for just a standard race chair. You're looking at, six grand and then you want to start adding carbon wheels you want to start maybe adding a carbon frame which is kind of a new thing that's coming about then you've got to think about how you're going to train indoors so you need the roller you need all the tools you need the gloves a pair of gloves you're looking at well for a pair of the 3d printer gloves you're looking at about 300 quid um so it kind of all adds up which yeah, so I don't really blame my dad because, you know, when you're 15, you, you jump in and out of things pretty quick. So I, 
I think he was uh, reluctant to make that that massive investment straight away. <laughs> it's a fantastic story, actually. I, was, I mean, I was going to say that's quite inspirational by itself, isn't it? That you you know you're limited by by means, so there's no point dreaming about that really expensive equipment if you know, and you've got to work with what your technical team can work with and. If your dad knows how to weld aluminium, then the chair's going to be made out of aluminium, isn't it? So, <laughs> Yeah, ultimately, I, I was really lucky that my dad has the skills that he has. A lot of youngsters coming into the sport, you have to rely heavily on you know, charity donations or fundraising or you know, other ways to just go and buy it. Whereas, like, dad's really clever, so anything I kind of wanted, he'd say, okay, take a picture of it, I'll see what I can do and... You know, it, w- it wouldn't be an overnight, like, oh, here you go, Roller. It took him months to build. <laughs> but like I said, like, here I am 15 years later in it, and it's still there. It's still assisting my training. So I was really lucky to have that, whereas most kids kind of, uh, well, most parents have to put their hand in the pocket and uh, and just suck it up if the kid wants it. <laughs> I think we've come to the end, really. Oh, yes. It's been lovely learning from an athlete who's obviously at the top of your game how all of these different features and techniques of your sport are deployed, basically. That's one of the great things I like about the Olympic Games is there's lots of sports in there that I never really have an opportunity to watch. And having them all conveniently put over a a few-week time slot is actually quite nice because you get to experience things that you haven't normally experienced. And when you start to drill down from the kind of superficial enjoyment of it, you really get into the detail like you were raising about the, the size of the uh, the push rims, for instance. And it, it just demonstrates that there's a whole world of knowledge there and expertise in a very niche area. So I find that quite fascinating, actually. So thanks very much for bringing it to us today. Anytime. <laughs> yeah. Thank you, Hannah, and good good luck. Thank you. Yeah, best of luck, Anna. All the best. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Green Shoots podcast by Appleyard Lees. If you would like to continue to follow Hannah's journey, follow her on Twitter at HCDream2012, Instagram at HLCMBE, or visit hannahcockcroft.com. If you have a question or issue you would like our IP specialist to discuss on the podcast, then tweet us at Appleyardlees or email us at ip at appleyardlees.com. <laughs>